Would anybody like to have anybody included in our prayers? Yeah, our friend Russ, R-U-S-S, he had a bleeding brain stroke in August. Really, really working hard, but he's still numb on the right side, so he cannot drive. But they're hopeful. He's hopeful. His wife. John, did you? Our friend Bill, who's having a heart valve replacement, I think uh, maybe tomorrow. Okay. Christian. So Kathy, who is Kathy, who's in this class, she just went through her hip replacement. Yeah. And uh, thanks for remembering that too. How'd it go? Do we know? Good. Yeah, very well. So far. Um. Actually, before we begin, because it would be better, uh, Becky, do you want to? Did you mention this yet? Mm -hmm. Can go ahead, take a minute, because I, okay. um, Becky, would like to have a minute. And I'm really glad to see what she's doing. But you guys, take a look at this. It's okay. really good. Well, my name is Becky. And um, I'm an oil painter. Um, I'm the president of the Grapevine Art Project, which is a nonprofit group of artists and art supporters. Um, artists are not all from Grapevine. Uh, we're from kind of this surrounding area. Right now, we have an exhibit in the Tower Gallery until the end of the year, um, and it's um, the building on Main Street that's got the big tower with the mm -hmm. cowboys that come out do the shoot them off, you know, mm -hmm. across from AJ's. So we're having um, our reception and holiday party, the Christmas party, next Thursday from 7 until 9. It's free. You're welcome to come. Free food and wine. Um, and of course, great art. And um, we have not only paintings, but we've got uh, some jewelry there, some pottery. So, um, there's sculpture, no, pottery. No, I don't think we, we have some pottery, small pieces. Um, it's just a hard time. We didn't have much notice this year. A lot of people already had commitments to other shows. So anyway, but since we are literature class, I did bring some bookmarks of some of my paintings. Um, so you can peel off the sticker off the back. I also have work in a gallery in Dallas, and so I had some prices on these but the <laughs> full picture of the painting is on the back and then a portion is on the front so Becky, let me sure. can, I, can i pass it this way Absolutely. so we'll go around so you can sure um are people free to take one or do you yes, want to just wait absolutely. hold it no 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 take one i want to get we got you might need one for your book. i've got one there um i just want to say a word about this before i turn them over to you um I have pretty strong feelings about art, as you could imagine. Um, and I've seen lots of town art festivals. We used to have them annually in California, and I was a little bit amazed at what's, what some of the artists were doing and really impressed. Um, so many people think of art as being um, photographic copies of reality, you know, so painters. That to me is almost always a sign that somebody's missing something in art. If, if you want to photograph of something, take it. Um, if, if, you, if you look at art history and watch the development of art, you almost always find, all, always find, in the really great artists, something of the spirit of the person bringing something to the way he looks at the world. So it can never, never, as good art, never be photographic. Art is not meant to be a replica of the world. 
because that's not true. I mean, we know that. Um, so, I mean, obviously you can go off on extremes, you know, in every form, but when Becky showed me this, I was stunned, just shocked. Um, because it seems to me one of the things you want to do through your technique is reveal, you know, we've been talking about this in poetry. You want to reveal something about the world, literally, that is that way, and show something beyond appearances. That's Plato's, you know, and so anybody who just strictly copies the appearances is missing something. So when she showed me this, I mean, the title of this is Unborn Souls. The beauty of it is you know that it's human, and you can get a feel of what she means by unborn souls just by the mood, the feeling, the painting, the colors. It's not strictly representational. She clearly has brought something of her feeling to this condition, to her art. So I was really impressed, really impressed. So um, take a look at this, and, and the date again was Thursday what? Can I put in a plug for, um, I went the other day to see the um, replica of the Sistine Chapel. Oh. Is anybody where? It's at the Women's Art Museum in Dallas. Dallas. <coughs> and I think it's till January, but oh my gosh, it's just incredible. It's, it's the exact replica of the Sistine Chapel and the Last Judgment, and it's in paintings along the wall, and then they do have some on the ceiling, but it's just incredible. The artwork there is... Again, just yeah. amazing, it's just truly amazing. Awesome. Yeah, the Last Judgment and the other things are powerful. Yeah. Um, just a reminder before we before we start. For those of you who might have missed, we're we're going to have we're going we're going to take the next two weeks in in December to to do Hamlet. I'll start Hamlet. I will just throw out some things tonight. We'll spend two weeks on Hamlet. It, it, it's a very, very important play. I'll, I'll try to say why when we get to it. And then we'll take a break for Christmas, the whole Christmas season. We will come back the first week of January on January 8th. January 8th on Sunday, we're going to have a potluck. Doc, can you, can you, I think it would be a good idea tonight, just, I mean today, to start a sign-up sheet for those of you who want to come and, and put what you would intend to bring so we can try to get people to cover enough things so that we'll have full meals and we're going to open it up to the parish. <coughs> Father will be announcing it and encouraging people to come so it, it'll probably be larger <coughs> than our Monday Friday groups. Okay. At, um, that's what I'm going to get to. So sign up January 8th. Um, I think we're going to, I'm going to ask people to start coming around 4.15, 4.30 and I've got to be careful about that. Father doesn't like movement in church, so we've got to all come through this door or and, and set up, this door would be just, but set up for food so that we can start eating, um, oh, sorry, I haven't, 5.30, 8.30, so I'd say like a quarter of five. So if we started coming at a quarter of four, took half an hour to just get our plates and meals, I start coming at a quarter, 15 after 4, 4.15, 4.15. We will start eating at a quarter of 5. I'm going to take a half an hour to lay some things out on the play while we eat. I think the winter's tale, the winter's tale is the most perfect 
rendering of forgiveness that I've experienced in my life and in art. It, you know how important the Divine Comedy is because the whole Paradiso is about we enter the world of forgiveness. But in one sense, Shakespeare goes way beyond what Dante does because he puts us in a human condition where some awful, awful things happen. There are among <coughs> the worst things that you'll find in all of Shakespeare. It, actually, they're, they're close to what happens in Othello, really close to what happens in Othello. And how it ends, to me, is, it, I mean, it brings me to tears. I, it's hard for me to watch it. It's just an extraordinary story. So we will watch that, and I'd like to start it at 5.30 because it's three hours. So that, is that right? Am I 5.30? Which, so we would be done at 8.30. That way people won't have a late evening. So we'll plan to start coming at 4.15 with food, putting everything out, and then having a meal, and I'll take a half an hour to lay some of the major themes of Winter's Tale out. What day of the week is that? Sunday. Oh, is it? Sunday, yeah. Is that combined with groups? Yeah. yeah. And the church. I mean, people, I'm assuming people, when people hear about it, they're going to want to come. So it, it will probably be a larger group. How many are you talking about, Bob, with the combined groups? There's, there's been, there's around 40. But, but in our groups, you, there's usually close. I mean, people come in and out, but yeah. but when it's when people are active, it's it's very often 20, 20, 20 and Friday morning, twenty and sometimes a little bit more, sometimes a little bit less. So I think there would probably be some weights. Let's say around thirty-five for our group, and thirty-five somewhere in there, forty plus whoever will come. When, because Father, for the few weeks before that, he's going to make announcements and encourage, and I'll, I'll, we'll, we'll put up a sign up out in the, um, in the foyer for parishioners to sign up and bring things themselves, so everybody will bring food. Okay, um, let's let's start. Let's start. Name of the Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Thank you again, Lord, for the gift of our life from you, the gift of yourself to us, especially in the Mass this morning. Um, here at the outset of Advent, um, you have given stern warnings that we, we don't know when the hour will come and to stay awake, that two will be in the field and one will be taken, two on a rooftop. Um, we don't know um, when our end is, so you ask us to stay awake, stay alert. What a wonderful period to, go, um, to head into Christmas um, waiting, learning to wait, um, turning from the world with whatever disappointments we meet there so that we, we put our whole mind, our heart, our being on you and all that you bring um, so that when Christmas comes all of us will experience again a rebirth, a renewal of your life in us. So help us to go through this Advent in a spirit of waiting, turning to you away from the world. Let's get a special blessing. Sorry, Russ? Russ. Russ, um, watch over him in this difficult time. Um, thank you for um, the success of Mary Jane's surgery. Watch over her in her recovery. Help her to get not too frisky too soon. 
um, all of us when we been sick, want to get going. So, um, Bill, um, uh, be with Kathy and her surgery and her recovery. I ask a special blessing on Christopher, our son. Help him heal. Um, help the doctors to find out what's going on with him. Um, and always with this reading, since. You, you're asking us to open our eyes, to see, to stay awake, um, to be, help to see our world more fully, more deeply through what we're reading, um, so that we're closer to you and closer to one another in everything that we do. We ask all of this um, in your name, Lord. Um, amen. Okay. Um, does everybody have the the um, the scansion sheet with the poems and the poem the media <coughs> poem sheet? Yes. I wanted to. I've been promising to do this for ages, and I, I'm only going to take a few minutes. But I I really do want to do this because hopefully it will increase your appreciation for how extraordinary people like Shakespeare are is. Um, do you all have the medieval poems? That list of you have one, Diane. The medieval poems. Remember, we read them the last couple of weeks. They're the ones that lead up to Shakespeare. Yes. Mm -hmm. It's the one that has Chaucer and oh, you don't have it, though. You have it. I want to just this. This will conclude the medieval lyrics. You remember that the medieval lyrics go back to uh, Beowulf. Um, that's the really was a great poem we have in Old English. And old, old English is very, very different from Middle English. The poems that we've been reading are from Middle English forward to Shakespeare. And I read them because I wanted you to hear our language in its infancy. You know, we, when, when we watch a Shakespeare play today, we hear it spoken in our English. But that's not what Shakespeare's audience would have heard um, when the plays were performed during his time. Um, so. I want to I want to do this, and then I want to take a minute to talk about the music of it. So, um, turn to Chaucer's preface again. I want to read it. I'm going to inflict this on you again because it's mostly because I love reading it, but I, but I want you to hear this again because it'll be our last time before we we get into modern lyrics. Uh, so I'm just going to read part of the prologue and then I want to do Tim or Mortis, I think it's on page three, because we've done all the others. I, the, um, the Three Ravens to me is one of the most beautiful early Renaissance, late middle, it's just lovely. Remember all these animals come to the wounded knight, he's wounded and then finally the pregnant doe comes and all of these animals offer their, themselves to the service 
Because in the medieval, like, remember, St. Francis, brother, son, sister, moon. Everything in nature was responsive to man because he was at the height of creation. So everything served him. And he served God. So the image of the great, remember, to carry that pagan world forward, the great image of the pagan world was the warrior, Achilles, Odysseus, Aeneas, the, the ideal man who could deal with evil in the world and overcome these disorders. That got carried forward into the, into the Christian Middle Ages, but it got transformed by caritas, by love. So the ideal of, of the Middle Ages was the Christian knight who would defend his lady, who would defend his king, serve his king. So in that poem, the three ravens on page two and three, remember? There were three ravens sat on a tree. I won't go through it again, but down in yonder green field, there lies a knight slain under his shield. His hounds, they lie down by his feet so well. The dogs keep watch, the birds keep watch, and finally the doe comes. Um, down there comes a fallow doe, as great with young as she might go. She lifted up his bloody head and kissed his wounds that were so red. She got him up upon her back and carried him to Earthen Lake. She buried him before the prime. She was dead herself ere evening song time. God send every gentleman such hawks, such hounds, and such a leman. Beautiful poem. So. We've, we've completed the medieval poems. I just want to read the beginning again of um, the prologue so you can hear it. And, and, um, and then we'll do Timur Mortis, and then I want to take a break and look at Scansion for a minute. That's it, going to be taking you back to grammar. That's why I've been avoiding it. But. Okay, Chaucer, the prologue. Quando aprile with suit, the drach of March has pierced to the root, and bathed every vein in switch liquora, of which virtue engendered is the fruit. When Zafiris eke with his sweet breath, inspired hath in every hold and hate, the tundra croppers in the young sun, hath in the ram his havacurus irona. And smaller fowls make in merudea, that sleep in odenic with open ye. So pricketh him natura in her courages, than longen folk to goon on pilgrimages, and palmeres for to seek in strange strondes, to ferner halwes kuta in sondri londes, and specially from every shiris anda and engelonda to Canterbury they wander. A holy blissful martyr for to seek that him hath hopen when they, when that they were sicker. Now here, just that's Chaucer, but here's, this is probably the best modern rendering that I know. It's, 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 it's the book that's used when people read medieval literature without reading it in Middle English. So on the, on the back, on page six, on the very back of, back of that section. And I, I want to read it just so you can hear <laughs> what's missed. When in April the sweet showers fall and pierce the draught of March to the root and all the veins are bathed in liquor of such power as brings about the engendering of the flower. When also Zephyrus with his sweet breath exhales an air in every grove and heath upon the tender shoot, you know, I could go on and on. But you hear the difference. I mean, it's almost comic because it's, you read it and you think you're reading Chaucer, but if you don't hear the original, you can, you can feel how much you're missing in the poetry, okay?
Okay. Um, Timur Mortis on page two, or on page three, sorry. In what a state so, and you know, the, the, one of the principal things, the church, um, memento mori, it's a mantra in the church, memento mori, remember death. We are asked to remember death all the time in our faith, to not forget it, memento mori. Um, it's one of the great things in the Middle Ages. We can't forget death. If, if we do, we do it at our risk. The, the cross is always there. We're asked not to forget it. Timur Mortis, in what a state so ever I be, Timur Mortis, country but me. As I went on a merry morning, I heard a bird both weep and sing. This was the tenor of her talking. Timur Mortis, country but me. I asked that bird what she meant. I am a musket, both fair and gent. For dread of death, I am all shent. Timur Mortis, country but me. When I shall die, I know no day, what country or place, I cannot say. Wherefore this long sing I may, Timur Mortis, country but me. Jesu Christ, when he should die, to his father he gan say, Father, he said, in Trinite, Timur Mortis, country but me. All Christian people, behold and see, this world is but a vanity and replete with necessity. Timur mortis, contra but me. Wake I or sleep, eat or drink, when I on my last end do think. For great, for greater fear my soul do shrink. Timur mortis, contra but me. God grant us grace him for to serve and be at our end when we starve. And from the fiend he us preserve. Timur mortis, contra but me. Okay. So from this point forward, the, the lyrics that we do will be more, more modern. Okay, um, here, because I'm going to raise these now and get rid of them because I'm going to go to the other side of the board and I don't want to come back. Um, I probably should wait, but this is... Um, these are the questions that I left everybody with, I think, when we began Othello. But I, want to, I just want to recall them briefly to have you keep them in mind before we go ahead, because um, I hope to answer all of these today. Remember that when we looked at um, Venice, it was the unreal city. It, it, it was the city that attempted to make itself sufficient, a self-sufficient city that doesn't need God. That's us. It's the modern commercial republic. <laughs> and the implications of that for us. I've said, and I think you all know now because you've, you've read the play, that um, Iago is the most evil villain in the whole corpus of Shakespeare. There's no other, Richard III is the closest and he doesn't get close. He's a king. The greatest villain takes his life in the commercial regime. It's our regime. So there's something about the modern commercial regime, America. Remember, our roots are Venice and Florence. We know Florence from the Divine Comedy. Venice is from Shakespeare. Um, there's something in the modern commercial regime that seems to make a place for this kind of evil. And the question that I asked everybody is, what is it about Venice? There's nobody in this world that isn't harmed by Iago. And you know from the ending, lots of people die. 
Um, what, makes, what makes them so susceptible to this man? Where does he get his power? If you look at the, um, the plays on monarchy, kingship, the Henry plays, the, the plays in which they're kings, because you know that Shakespeare lived under a monarchy, um, you don't find anybody having the power that Iago does. Americans think we protected ourselves by breaking away from a king. Our beginnings are our revolution against George. Yeah? And um, we feel safer because we don't, we, don't have to, we don't have to face the dangers of living under a despot. Okay? Iago has more power, he hurts more people, he has more control over people than any king I know. It's devastating. Um, and we know that he's evil, so when we read the play, we're watching evil work and nobody aware of it. I mean, that's, in, in Richard, you know that there are, are, are uh, dynasties lining up who are ready to fight, but it's really clear on the part of the dynasties that a king is evil. They're aware of it. In, in uh, Othello, nobody's aware. They're all blind to it. So what, what is it about Venice that gives Iago such control? Um, Othello loves Desdemona deeply. I've read those quotes. That, you know, um, we read them together. The, the words that he expresses towards Desdemona are unlike almost any other man in the whole of Shakespeare's works. They're extraordinary. He loves her. Um, Iago insinuates that there's something unfaithful in her and he begins to doubt and at one point he asks for signs and Iago gives him signs and he finally puts on a play and at the center of that play you remember is that handkerchief and what we another thing that we see in this Venetian world is that people seem to be particularly susceptible to signs I think about it a lot today because if you think about the internet the internet is nothing but signs. We're constantly, we're bombarded with images. They're signs, they signify something. Yeah. So there is this um, inherent susceptibility to signs in Venice as well. And uh, towards the end, the, the proof that finally decides Desdemona's guilt is that hanky. Even, even when Iago didn't prove it. It's like, a, it's like a play, a court scene being played out and it's on the basis of what happens there that Othello believes that Desdemona is unfaithful, and he's going to kill her. So on the basis of that, he will kill her. And we've already seen, we've gone over this passage, Othello's a good man. If we don't see that, we're missing the tragedy. That, that if we don't see how good he is, we, we miss what had to happen to make him do that, the, the tragic action, what makes it a tragedy. He's an extraordinary man. He's so capable. He's, he's a good general. And yet he ends up killing the thing that he loves most in the world. What is it about Venice that does that? This is us. And you know what I've, <laughs> that I'm not being loose with this. I, my claim all along is that's us. If we don't learn to see that in us, it's like going into Dante's Inferno. If we don't learn to see those things in ourselves, there's something wrong in the way that we're standing, I'm going to say it with Christ, because that's the whole purpose of coming together. Signs, Desdemona's death at the very end, you remember, she, he strangles her, and for all appearances, she's dead. And then a couple minutes later, she speaks. And Othello, shocked, he goes back, and there's that moment where um, she says, 
um, um, a guiltless death I die. She claims innocent, and I'm going to go, I want to wait, because if, anyway, you know, if those of you have read it, you know what she says, and it's sort of amazing. Does she come back from the dead? How do we understand that moment when she speaks again, with Othello there and Amelia over her body, and then she dies? I would, how are we to, because that's, that's extraordinary. There are only a few scenes like that in Shakespeare. Othello, a, moment, a few months after that, will die. He will take his life. Lots of critics see him as um, being cowardly. Yeah. So how do we look at his death? That's, that's not a small thing. And then finally, where's Christ? Okay, and that's because that's the question we've been asking every... So those are the questions that I just want to ask everybody to keep in mind. Um, as we go forward, but I want to I want to take a few minutes off to do something that I've been threatening you with for ages, and finally have to do. Take out your scansion sheet, can you? There are two things I want to do today to hopefully will further our readings that we will be able to see more in what we're reading with this behind us. There are two forms of verse in English. One is called alliterative verse, and the other is called syllabic. You all know what alliteration is? It's the repetition, usually, of initial consonant sounds. In Old English verse, up until the Norman Conquest, I think 1060, my, my details might be wrong. I'm glad for any historian's help in here. 1066, thanks, Don. Um, 1066, the, the Norman conquest took place, and when the Normans um, came over, they introduced a syllabic verse, a French verse, into the English. Up until that time, the English verse was alliterative, and it was basically this kind of a, a, a verse line. It had four strong beats, boom, 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 two on each side of the line. So it, it, it's almost like the, the rowing ships, that it came out of the early Viking ships and the sense of rhythm, a heavy rhythm. And I mean, I, there's, I think there's something to that. I think people have theorized that so far. Take a look at the scansion um, sheet I gave you, and you'll get a couple of examples of it early on. This is from Beowulf, and it's a translation because if it were Old English, we couldn't read it. The Old English is so different from Middle English. Lo, we have listened to many a lay of the Spear Dane's fame and martial deeds from a friendless founding, feeble and wretched. You can hear it, right? Boom, 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 boom. Is this the original hip-hop? Uh? <laughs> <laughs> yes. See what I told you? See, just remember my words. Aren't you mad I wasn't here in the last room? Here, here's the rule. Generally, generally, not always, but the general rule is that the to establish a pattern in order to make the the variations from it more effective. The first, the first half of the line had to have two heavy accents, and the unaccented line foot, if we're going to call it that, was unaccented, and then. A follow, but it, it can vary. But generally, that was the rule: two heavy accents, an unaccented accent. The beautiful thing about alliterative verse 
is that with these, if you call these feet, there were four feet, two <coughs> feet, and two feet on each half of the line, there could be an indefinite number of syllables. So the beauty of the line is that it, it was flexible so that it could lend itself to a spoken line. It's close to our spoken English. That'll become even clearer in a second, but is that clear? So you could have 10 syllables on this first foot and three on this one. Well, here, look. Take a look at the low. There's the first foot. It's the very first word of the line. And then the next foot, we have listened. There's three, four. There's four syllables in that foot. To many is, is two syllables, a lay, or y. Y, a, lay, three. So a foot can consist of an indefinite number of syllables, but there had to be four stresses, four alliterating, alliterative, alliterating sounds. That was the beat. That was the music. Um, this is medieval. This is closer to Chaucer's time. The king lay at Camelot upon Christmas with money luflitch a lord, ladies of the best, reckonly of the round table, alla though rich brother, with rich revel, orat, and riches, matters. You can hear the, the consonants, the alliteration in each line, okay? Um, now, syllabic verse has, in, the, in the, the traditional form in English, has five feet. Five, five, and by the way, all, all of us have had music, so you know if it's a four-four count or a two-four count in music, you have a regular established pattern. And you also know that even if you have an established pattern, no, no measure is the same because the, the melody varies from, from what, measure to measure. What am I, is that the right word? From frame to frame, measure to measure. So in English, there are five feet, one, two, three, four, five, of ions. There are four basic rhythms. There's an increase, da-da, or a decreasing rhythm, da-da, that's called a troche, um, an anapest, two unstressed with a stress, or a dactyl, a stress followed by two unstressed. Those are the basic feet. For, in truth, there's probably 25 other feet, and it's just too complicated to go in, but these are the basic feet in syllabic verse. And in Shakespeare's line, He's writing an iambic pentameter, five feet of ions. Okay? That's the result of a French influence coming into English. Okay? Now look at look at Portia's, this is that famous speech of her in the courtroom scene. Well, let I mean the the opening lines of uh, Merchant Venice. The opening line, Antonio. In sooth I know not why I am so sad. There's the five feet. Now now Watch this. You never read poetry this way. Da 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 da. You never. That's the underlying beat, just like a, a bar, a measure of music. Because even if you have the same beat, four four count, let's say, you know that every bar, every measure will be different. So you never go in sooth. I know not why I am so sad. You'd kill it. But you can hear that there's an underlying rhythm. And, and imagine, Shakespeare writes every line like this, and you never hear that because every line is a variation. It never duplicates itself. We're supposed to read poetry rhetorically. Robert Frost, when he taught school, would test kids. 
to see that they read. And Frost was a master of traditional English verse. So you never say, in truth, I know, not why. You'd say, I mean, you've been hearing me read it rhetorically. I will run over, I'll stop at the end of the line when it's supposed to. I mean, you, 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 a poet is a musician. He's playing, it's a counterpointed music. Every line is played off against this rhythm. So the opening line of Merchant is, in sooth, I know not why I am so sad. It wearies me, you say, it wearies you. But how I caught it, found it, or, you know, you'd read it the way you'd read it. But look at the meter. It's invariable. It's, it's fixed. It, there's a music going on so that when we hear poetry, we should be feeling something we won't be able to feel in prose because prose is much looser. Porsche's line, the quality of mercy is not strained. It droppeth as the gentle rain from heaven upon the place beneath. It is twice blessed. Notice that I'm stopping with a period, a semicolon. I mean, I'm, he's a musician. He's asking us to pay attention to the music. Um, that was the traditional verse up until the time of Shakespeare and Milton, and then it's as if what Shakespeare did could not be imitated because what he did with language is so extraordinary. And it's almost as if English poetry goes into decline after Milton. By the time we get to Hopkins, and you know we've read Hopkins, remember the wind hover and dragonflies? Look at what Hopkins do. This is, the, this is from the wind hover. He's writing in five feet lines. Lines have five feet in them. But notice how he assimilates syllabic and alliterative verse because Hopkins knew that if English poetry were going to have to go forward, it would have to be innovative. It's not free verse. He's going back to alliterative verse to, to the beginnings of the English language. And he's bringing in an alliterative verse in, in a syllabic line. So look, I caught this morning, morning's minion, kingdom of daylights, dauphin, dappled, dawn, drawn, falcon in his writing. You remember that line. Anyway, you can hear the alliteration, right? Mm -hmm. So what he's doing is really amazing. With the rolling level underneath him, steady air, and striding high there, how he rung upon the rain of a wimpling wing. See how subtle it is? You can hear the alliteration, but it's much subtler. Um, it doesn't have that heavy alliterative. And, and it has the advantage because it has an alliterative structure. He can put six syllables in one foot, two syllables in another. Because remember, I mean, think about how amazing that Shakespeare had to do this and get 10 syllables in a line. How hard it would be to get words in using that metrical pattern. Is that clear? The literature gives you some flexibility because you don't have to have the same number of syllables per foot. You can have an indefinite number. So Hopkins did amazing things. He was really an innovator. And he was an innovator because he went back. And he, and he brought the past forward in a, in a different way. He did amazing. You've, you've read some of his poems and he did an amazing thing. Anyway, I wanted you to see that. Um, here, turn to page two. Just, uh, this is from Frost's Stopping by Woods. It's a poem written in iambic tetrameter, four feet, not five. But this is Frost, whose woods these are, I think I know. His house is in the village, though. He will not see me stopping here to watch his woods fill up with snow. We've done that before, and I'll do it again. There's that iambic line. And notice, 
if the line is like this, if this is the, if this is the pattern, that in some feet, there will be an inverted foot. It'll be a trochee. It'll be a stress and unstress. So it'll be unstress, stress, stress. So in the line, there can be tremendous variation in rhythm and feel. And all of these guys, Frost, Shakespeare, Hopkins, use that as a way of giving emphasis to what they're doing, to play variations, counterpoints. So there's this musical element that, that um, is a part of poetry. One of the, one of the most, remember in, I'm gonna, I, don't want, I don't want you to pull it out, but remember in uh, Windhover, he's describing the, the movement of the bird, the flight of the bird, and then he goes and buckled, exclamation. The first foot, it's the first foot of the line and it stops. So that whole motion is gathered to that buckle and stops. That was not an accident. That was Hopkins bringing that whole movement to that abrupt moment that represents the, the crucifixion, the mastering nature. So poets do things like that. I mean, they're, 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 they're trying to help us feel things emotionally, to, to move with something um, in ways um, people who are not poets don't do and, and wouldn't know about um, unless they knew something about poetry. So, so let me start. Any questions about that? Just brief. Um, poets are doing amazing things, pretty amazing things when you think about what they're doing. What about the good morrow? Why is that? just, that's John Dunn. I didn't want to do it, Linda, because It's, it's, it's written in iambic pentameter verse. It's traditional. I gave you two sonnets from Shakespeare. We'll read them later, but, but right now I just wanted you to, to have some sense of what, what he's doing with words because it, it's pretty amazing um, and it's good to know. Um, okay. No other questions about that? If you looked at Shakespeare's words, if you looked at his lines and scanned them, you could go a whole, through a whole play and see that they almost scan, except there are times when he will fall into prose. It's very often because it's the lower class, like a clown or a hotspur or a comic figure who slips into prose. And, and that's not an accident. It's because, remember in that class when we were doing Othello and I read you those lines and, and he has that one line where he said, I'm root of speech. Othello is an illiterate man. He's an African, he's a warrior. He belongs to that warrior world. He brings that warrior world into Venice. Um, I was saying to Suzanne the other day when I was thinking about what's going on in America with all the refugees. We were all, my, my grandmother, one generation away from me, was from Greece. Um, the, the funny stories about that. I hear stories about somebody on my uncle's side who came over from Greece and got killed in a gambling match up in Idaho somewhere, you know, that just, the people from this, well, they bring, you know, we, we pride it. This is one of the great ironies about Venice that, remember, we talked about this in the opening of Merchant Events. All these people are so well-educated, and yet they're blind. All the people in Othello, so well-educated, and they don't have a clue what's going on around them. Um, that Othello is root of speech. He says that about himself. He can't speak. And he speaks some of the most extraordinary lines of a lover in all of Shakespeare. Why? Because it's Shakespeare's way of showing 
there's some things a man can express in words that he feels. We talked about that, that very often, and how do we describe the love that we feel for each other? I mean, I love you is, I mean, obviously really important, but there are times when you want to say more and you don't have the words. It's the poet who makes us aware of what's inside a man through his poetry. He helps us to feel that. So it, this, is, this is not Shakespeare embellishing Othello. It's not a poet creating lies, having a character speak words that he, it's clearly impossible for him to speak. It's his way of showing that there are things to this man that we can only feel in poetry because they're so extraordinary. Um, so remember that poet, reading poetry means we, we have to work at reading a different way because the poet is doing something different. Either he's a liar, which is what some people claim, or remember the cave imagery in Plato, or he's helping us to see and feel things that are important if we're to get out of the cave, but we, we have to see and feel it then, and that's what the poet is helping us to do. Okay, let me stop. Any questions on this before we... Um, I, wanted, I want to look at one thing in Hamlet, two things in Hamlet, before we finish with Othello. Nothing. Two things in Hamlet. Wait, oh, sorry, I have to do the, I have to do the genres. Sorry. I'm so out of, it's, I've been a week from class, and like Suzanne said to me last night, you remember we have class tomorrow? God, oh God. It almost knocked me over. I'd completely forgotten. What? Good I know, I know, God. I mean, it completely shocked me. I was not ready, my mind. So my mind is still waking up. Sorry, you guys. It's, um, genres, the other thing that I wanted to get to. Remember that we've been reading in three genres. Aristotle says four, and I don't want to get into that right now, but, but this is so important to what we're doing. We've been starting each class with lyric poems. Up until just recently, uh, we were reading epics. That's all we read. When we entered the modern world, we started reading drama. So you guys, it's really it's sort of amazing. You guys have, you know, you've been introduced to a whole world of literature. Each of these genres is different and gives us a different aspect of the world. The book that I'm writing, actually, that, that's keeping me going here, the argument that I'm making is that the ultimate source of these three voices are the three persons of the Trinity. I don't want to get into that because it's too heavy, but I really believe that there's something there. The lyric poem always gives us the I, the I am. It's the inner subjectivity of the poet. In lyric poems, we go into the poet 
into those things that are obscure and almost indescribable because they're too deep in our souls. So the lyric poet is the one who helps reveal us to ourselves, our feelings. You, you know, I think most of you know, if, if you were to ask men and women how good men are at expressing their feelings, most women would laugh and scorn at men because they'd say, oh, are you kidding? That men don't do that very well, which seems to me fairly true, except look at the poets. Because the poets are the ones who help us to, to know things through our feelings more than anybody else. Um, the lyric, the inner subjectivity of the poet, I am that am. That's Yahweh. I am that am. So in the lyric, we go into the interior to learn to see what's there that's invisible to us. The, the, the terrain, what Louise Cowan's called the terrain, is the lyric gives us three stages. The, the, um, the moment of anticipation, um, consummation, and um, lamentation. That the lyric gives us the whole range of our inner experience, so that we and, and the whole motion is in the direction of love, towards having that love completed. Because all human God has given all of us this infinite desire. We long for something. It's only when we finally attain that end, that object, whatever it is, that we rest. We call that contentment, blessedness, happiness. Right? Until that time, we're, we're, we're longing for something, we'll get anger if somebody takes it away from us, we'll be sad if we lose it. That's the whole range of emotions, yeah? So the lyric gives us the whole emotional interior of man, anticipating the end, and for us it would be the beatific vision. On earth it's the beloved. Typically for the poet it's the beloved. Um, it can be other things because our love turns towards other things. But the lyric gives us that interior. Anticipation, consummation, um, coming into union with the object of love, the beloved, and lamentation, it's loss. So there's no experience, no inner emotional experience that the lyric doesn't deal with. It's the whole range of our inner life. Tragedy takes place when we lose this. Now, um, the, the, the lyric typically has as its topos, its location, the garden. Where did our life begin? In the garden. God created us in a garden state, one with nature. The, and, and try to imagine the Edenic beauty that surrounded Adam and Eve. Something close to what we know now. If, you, if you've ever been in a New Hampshire, New England in the fall, Oktoberfest, when the beauty of nature is almost overwhelming leaves you speechless. But it begins in the garden and it moves towards the city. And the interesting thing about this movement is it begins in the garden and moves towards the city, the New Jerusalem, because we, we've, we lost the garden, we, we entered into city life. The New Jerusalem, if you've read Revelation, is almost like a garden city. You know, water's pouring out of things. It doesn't have the hard concrete sense of something. It's almost one with nature in the way the New Jerusalem. I saw a city, I, would, I saw the city falling out of the, 
It's one of the most stunning descriptions of the city in all of literature in, in Revelation. Um, after the fall, the lamentation, death, we enter into the world of tragedy. That's where we've been in Othello. That's where we'd be with Hamlet. The first half of Winter's Tale would be a tragedy. The two movements of, tra of drama. In tragedy, we begin with prosperity and end in death and calamity. Something happens. So the trajectory is from something good to its loss. All tragedy ends in suffering and loss. That's the movement, the action, the underlying action that all tragedy imitates. In comedy, the action is the reverse of that. The, it begins moving towards some apparent tragedy. What is it in Merchant of Venice? You should know this now. What's the tragedy we're moving towards in Merchant? Antonio's death. It all looks like it's going to end tragically, right? Almost every comedy starts out apparently happy, but immediately something dark enters the world. And it looks like it's going to move towards a tragedy. And suddenly something happens and um, the tragedy is averted and it ends happily. So the movement of tragedy is from some prosperity, some good to its loss, its death, some calamity. The movement of tragedy is from some apparent prosperity. Comedy. Or, com sorry, comedy that quickly moves towards a tragedy and then ends very often in marriages and blessedness. and um, So these are the two conditions that give us the complete life. It's a, they show us two aspects of our human condition. We all know them because we've all had tragic moments. We've all, we've all known moments of joy. And the interesting thing about the action of both of these is this. Aristotle said that every good tragedy, and that would mean comedy because comedy is the opposite, it's the mere reverse. Every good tragedy, the, the very best, at its center has um, an anagnorisis and a peripatia. Peripatia, sorry. Pair. A turn, an anagnorisis from the Greek, to see, to recognize. Oedipus thought he had all the answers to everything and suddenly realized he didn't. The anagnorisis is a moment of recognition. We think we're going through life, we think we have all the answers, then suddenly something hits us and we realize we didn't see it right at all. That the way we saw the world was wrong. It's at that moment when we feel like a rug has been pulled out or something strikes us and, and we realize that there was so much that we didn't see in the church we call those moments of conversions uh, metanoia it's a moment of a metanoia and the peripatia is the turn that's what it means to turn because at that moment in seeing the whole action turns we saw this from the very beginning those of you who have been with us from the beginning in the Iliad remember the whole action moves it starts with a, um, a ransom that's refused, a quarrel. Achilles has a number of peripatias, a number of revelations. The, the most important is when Patroclus dies, and he said, he's the only man to say, I let everybody down. Nobody else in the book says that. Nobody else in the story. Not Agamemnon, anybody. I let everybody down. 
And that's the moment that put, takes him back into the war, and when he returns to the war, that whole action that started it, ransom, quarrel, you know, is inverted. There's a, there are quarrels that break out during the, um, the, the funeral games. And Achilles settles every one of them. And then there's that end where Priam brings the ransom for his son, and it's received, and the two men weep together. They're, they're bitter enemies. These are the men who wanted to kill each other. Now think about the Iliad in terms of that action, and it's extraordinary. It's almost an emotion towards grace. The killing, the fighting, the hatred. And it ends with these two men weeping, and Achilles offering protection to Priam because he knows if Agamemnon sees him, he will take all of his booty that he's brought to ransom for his. So every great work has this turn. And what's important about it is that it's a reaffirmation of reason in the world, that there's this logos we've been talking about from the beginning, this in nature, Christ, this logos. God is everywhere present. So in the midst of all these calamities, wars, whatever it is, God is present. One of, one of those beautiful things about the Iliad for me, try to imagine God over in Afghanistan, Iraq, or, you know, with people killing each other. It just seems to me it's so hard to imagine. But how could he not be there? These are his children. There is no place that, where God is not. So one of the beauties of the Iliad is that we're watching this um, action in which men are killing each other, and the gods are always present, acting. So um, tragedy is that moment away from the garden, and the tragic hero is that man who, who, because of some nobility, separates himself from other men. He does something that nobody else does. Achilles, Odysseus, Aeneas, it'll be Othello, it'll be Leontes in Winterstown. His nobility separates himself, and something happens to isolate him. And in that moment of isolation, he enters what Louise called the tragic abyss. It's like he's facing nothingness. And I'm, I'm assuming all of us have had those moments, you know, that something happens in our life um, when, when we, th we think our whole world is sort of organized or something we want is there, and then suddenly something happens, and... It's like it's all going to be lost. It could be the death of somebody. It can be a spiritual conversion. I mean, whatever it's going to be. But in that moment, the tragic hero enters the tragic abyss. It's like he's close to nothingness. I think something like that goes on when we sin. That we separate ourselves from being. That, because remember, for us, evil is not an active thing. Evil is a privation. It's a loss of something. Evil is not a real thing. It's a privation. So when we commit a sin, we separate. It's like we enter into the abyss, the nothingness that was there before creation when God made us. It's like we put ourselves outside of our causes into nothingness. Um, but every tragedy, every good tragedy, has a moment of recognition, a turn, and a change in the tragic hero. So when Oedipus saw that he, he actually killed his father and married his mother, he tears his eyes out. Oedipus Rex ends with, with um, Oedipus with his eyes gorged out. He comes back on stage and lots of people see that as nihilism, that it's, 
meaningless and horrible. I, I think Oedipus is extraordinarily beautiful. I mean that in the depths of my soul. He, he, for the first time, he begins to see things that nobody else had seen before and that he didn't. The cost of it is awful, but he sees. He sees things. That moment lines up for me with the cross because the cross, in some sense, is the most beautiful thing that's ever occurred, and that makes it the most grotesque because God is put on a cross and killed. So at the center of our experience is this bringing together of blessedness and grotesqueness. This, that, and the good art, I believe, captures that. I thought something of that was conveyed in this. I thought that was just extraordinary. Um, um, so the tragic hero sees um, it's a reaffirmation of reason, of something in the world taking us through the abyss and bringing us out of it. And we enter the comic world. And in comedy, it's always a move, it's always, remember, a move from something that looks potentially tragic towards joy. Louise Cowan used to say, comedy is missing the bus. You'd be running quickly, you're late, and you see the bus pulling up, and just when the bus pulls up, you trip and fall, and the bus goes on. And you have to pick yourself up and scrape your knees, they're wounded, and wait. Comedy is a world of hope and waiting for something to come. Because all comedy ends with something you could have never expected at the beginning. What's the, what, what is it in Merchant of Venice? You've all read it. In the middle of the play, we get the news that Antonio lost all of his ships. What happens at the end? The last thing you could have expected. All the ships are returned. There's always something in the nature of a miracle, something that couldn't have been anticipated happens to turn the action. I see, I, I hope you all see where, I mean, this is the center of our faith, that there is this cross at the middle of it that is painful and awful and something to run away from. It's so scary. And yet on the other side of it is this blessedness. And everything in comedy looks like there's all these troubles and yet something happens to turn them. So comedy, I've got another one too. You, you can think about it as, as uh, missing the bus, or how about this? You can think about it as for, um, comedy is forgetting the keys. There's this couple that I think you all know that they drove separate cars off to work and the husband forgot the keys one day. <laughs> forgot, or no, no, he, he, he drove off and took the keys with him. And he got a call later in the day from his wife saying, you got the keys, I can't go to work. So she had to get a, a ride to work and then he went to work and brought the keys and then took off. But she was still without the car, so she, she had to wait through the rest of the afternoon until the car came. Do you want to comment on that, Tom and Linda? <laughs> that was a tragedy. Yeah. No, that was a comedy. <laughs> I hope you don't mind. I hope you don't mind my plagiarizing here. No, that's great. That's an actual story. It is. Linda and Tom told Suzanne, you have another one? Yeah. Go. No, 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 you're not going to. <laughs> 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 By the way, there's a poet, because she, she's not going to hear somebody say, no, you're not going to do that. We lived in Omaha. We had two little kids. Dom was going out of town, so we drove to the airport. He drove to the airport. We almost with him. 
usually the kids and I would go up on the deck at the Omaha airport and watch, watch the plane take off. But this day, for whatever reason, I said, no, let's just go home. I think it was evening and I didn't want to be out after dark. So I'm running to the car with the kids and it dawns on me that Don has the keys to the car. Oh. Don's getting on an airplane. <laughs> so we go racing. I couldn't leave the kids, they're little. I raced back into the airport with these two little toddlers, went to the gate and I said, my husband has the car keys. The plane was just starting to taxi. Wow. That all of a sudden the plane stopped. The stewardess comes to Don. Wow. Right? Where's the comedy in? <laughs> <laughs> A whole plane stopping? Are you kidding me? The plane stopped and they, the stewardess went to Don, found him, and said, Mr. Coffey, you have the car keys. Your wife cannot go home. Long story. Yeah, no, that's good. <laughs> so we're not alone, right? Yes. We have company. <laughs> and it, and it's <laughs> and it's uh, it's company in a comedy too. Now think about if we put these two together. And the interesting thing about both of your stories in tragedy, the emphasis is always on individual responsibility. Always, somebody's going to suffer. We've seen that from the beginning, right? But every epic has been about the disorders of a people, um, and some burden falls upon an individual to bear those. It's Achilles, Odysseus, Aeneas, Christ. That, that it's only because of some divinely appointed task that an individual picks up the suffering that it asks of him that something can be done to, to answer the disorders. So at the heart of all tragedy is individual responsibility. We learn to go inside a person and see actually what he has to bear to deal, these things, deal with these things. Comedy is communal. It's always people working together. Um, a husband coming back and to bring the to bring the keys and forgetting the cars. There, that's a real. I mean, whatever you say about, it, they're still together. It didn't isolate them because the the the, laugh, the joke is there and and um, Fran going to get the keys, you know, and and a plane stopping. And I'm gonna I'm gonna interject. This is being fancy, but the tragedy of it. I mean, the potential tragedy. Somebody was in that plane going, damn, the, why didn't they just leave them behind? Because I've got this appointment in San Francisco, or, you know, because it's comic. I mean, here's this improbable thing happening, and, uh, and it, it allowed her to get home that night. So tragedy always takes us to the abyss. Comedy always takes us to a joy. There's always a cost. Remember, long-suffering Odysseus. Long-suffering Odysseus. Long-enduring that... The very nature of comedy is to hope that there's a community in, in, in which people bear something together to help bring something about. And what's brought about is never just of their own doing. Something's always, something always happens that you could not have expected. So there's always something miraculous. It's beyond the power of man. So if you watch the circle here, you can see the garden moment, the, 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 the union between lovers, the beloved, the loss of it. The entering the tragic world, the, the, the world of drama and comedy, pointing back to the epic. The epic is all, always about a battle, about a new founding. Remember, every epic has shown us a people struggling with a disorder. But the whole movement is back towards a new founding, a new order. 
But out of this struggle, something new will come. In the Aeneas, it's Rome. In Dante, it's the beatific vision. The epic is always a return to a new order, the garden, the new Jerusalem. So in all of literature, in the three genres, we have the whole of our experience, everything that we know as humans with each other and with God. Now, one last thing on this. I've been talking from the beginning about the prophetic nature of literature, that it always shows us things about ourselves that very often we don't want to see, that they're hard to see. I'd like to just put this in a different perspective today, particularly because of the plays. They're shorter and they're smaller. They're easier to get a hold of than an epic. Think about this. What, the, what literature, remember I've always said, literature returns us to the world. It gives us a knowledge as experience. We're not in our heads, we're not in theories, we're not in generalizations, we're in experience. But it's always an experienced enriched. We learn, we learn to see more, feel more in that place, right, when we're in the story. Something's being given to us. Now think about this, because this is extraordinary. When we're in the middle of Othello, just for example, when we're in the middle of Othello, poetry is teaching us to come out of the self-centeredness that defines us so often. Because each one of us has a self and we're at the center of a world, right? We see things from our, from our perspective. Um, and that means there's lots of things we don't see. Literature takes us out of that self-centeredness because in literature, we're with each character as that character is relating to a whole. All these other characters come into play. So immediately it's teaching us to see beyond ourselves. And the, one of the most, and it, it's doing two things. One is, um, it, it shows the inner and outer world simultaneously. When we're with Othello, there are times when we get in Iago's head, or Othello's head. When we're reading Hamlet in the next couple of days, we're going to be in Hamlet's mind a lot. But we're going to be watching a world in which characters relate to each other, so we go, we stand the way God does to a whole community. We get outside of ourselves and begin to see what's going on around us. Now think about what that does to us just in the way we live our lives, if we took it seriously. We would make ourselves less self-centered and aware that so much more is going around us that we don't see. And so long as we're trapped in our own self-centeredness, we tend to be blind. We don't see, we don't feel what we could. That's the first. And the second is, and this is amazing, Shakespeare never judges. Never judges. I believe he's Catholic, by the way. In Hamlet, I'm going to start it in a minute. Boy, this is getting, getting away from me. In Hamlet, we're going to be in a play in which a number of people in that play presume to be able to get into the soul of Hamlet, to see what's inside of him. And they're going to fail miserably. They, what, what, he, what Shakespeare shows us is um, it's really hard to see inside of the soul of another unless you love. Love is unitive. It brings us together. We, we enter into another person's soul. But that's always risky, because to enter into the soul of another means we enter into a world of sin, of adventure, of risk, pains, crosses. So I've been talking about this prophetic quality to literature. See it in that terms. 
In literature, we learn to stand in a center, but no longer self-centered. That we see people relating to each other, so we become aware of a whole. And we, we begin to be aware that there's more going on than a person sees. If we relate that to our own life, it should be health-giving, because it helps us to see, we think we see everything. Now, go back to what the point I made a minute ago. He, do, he doesn't judge. I really believe Hamlet's a, a Reformation play. It's about the Protestant Reformation. Hamlet's going to have this private experience. It's going to undo him. As Catholics, I mean, you know that I've been pretty open about differences between Catholicism and Protestant from the very beginning. A couple of the people in our class are Protestant. They keep coming. I'm so proud of them. I mean, I feel like I'm partly beating them over the head, but they, I mean, they, they love it, and I'm so grateful to them. We stand outside of a, of a Protestant world judging it. It's not ours. Yeah, it's different. Shakespeare never does that. He takes us into this Hamlet world in which this private revelation will undo him completely. There's no judging. We enter that world as experience. Othello is a warrior. He comes from Africa. He's like a lot of refugees. He belongs to an uneducated. In Othello, we enter into that person's soul and we see this extraordinary person capable of all these things. He's going to kill his wife. He, there's not a line in there that judges Othello. If anybody's going to judge, it's going to be us in the way that we look at it. So how do we look at it? I mean, now we're going to get there. You know, how do we look? What do we, what do we make of the end when he takes his life? How do we see that act? Are you all following? So in literature, we're not in ideas. We're not in generalities. We're not making judgments. We enter into that world from the outside, from the inside. We learn to see a whole going on. It enlarges our field of vision and it deepens it inwardly because we learn to see inside, to feel what another person feels, to see what another person sees. So I think it's prophetic in that sense. It, it teaches us to see, I think it gives us a glimpse of what God must see. That he's watching a whole, that there are things to feel about people that take us outside of our world, to feel those things the way he would. These are all his creatures, we're all his creatures, so. Okay, let me stop. I want to quickly turn to just open, throw out some things on Hamlet, and then I want to I'm finish with that one. Say, start over. I'm just thinking that um, by being involved in a dramatic play, you know, when, when we finally got uh, Al Pacino plays uh, Shiloh. Shiloh. Yeah. Unbelievable. Yeah. And and then uh, you you when you see the whole drama portrayed. You know, when they're in the court scene, it's like, oh my God, there's no way out of this, right? Yeah. And it's so, yeah. it's so powerful. So the, um, so it's almost like, I mean, if it takes you out of the, that's one thing, it takes you out of the cave. I mean, Plato's cave. It's like you see so much more yes. that you cannot. Yes. Yes. And it's a, it's a kind of intuitive knowledge. You see something that gets revealed there that, I mean, until you see those images and that acting, and, and what was wonderful about this movie is we could go back and listen to the actors who played the roles yeah. and how Shakespeare's roles affected them playing those roles. Mm -hmm. And then, you know, Al Pacino didn't want to play Shylock because he thought it was anti-Semitic. Mm -hmm. 
but when he gets into it, and then it's like, oh my yeah. God, yeah. the revelation happens in him. Yeah. <laughs> Just to reinforce the point, so often when we look at things like that, we tend to see them as ideas. We will make a judgment, an idea. When you're in the play, the way Tom and Linda were, when they, you're involved in that play at a level of experience. You're experiencing it. It's not an idea. Our minds are not judging or making generalities. We're in it. We become a part of the experience. That experience becomes a part of us. It takes its place within us. So there is a more intuitive kind of knowledge taking place as experience. It's not conceptual. When the play's over, you begin to think about it, and you'll make judgments and say things. Um, but while you're in it, it's our world. It's, we're a part of an experience going on, just the way we would at home with our, in our families or at work or wherever we are. Yeah. It's a different way of knowing. Anna, I can't spell it. I can't see the word. Um, Anagnorisis. Anna. Here, Linda. A-N-A. Anag. Anagnorisis. And peripatia. I think it's... I can't remember if it's he or I. I want to just do something quick on Hamlet, and then I want to I want to go to the end of Othello because we've taken too much time. Can you close that? Can oh, I'm sorry. No, no, that's okay. I will. Take a look at the uh, beginning of Hamlet. I'm just going to point out two things about Hamlet, and then I want to go to the end of of Othello. Remember what I've said about the opening of Shakespeare's plays, all of them. Every, every opening line, every opening scene gives away the whole play, always. It's an amazing, it, it, he's, he's such a genius. He, it's a way of showing that the whole is always there in parts. We won't know it until we've read the whole, until we know the whole thing. You know, it's, like, it's like waiting till the end times when we die and Hopefully we're all with God and then we'll see things that we just didn't see while we were here. The whole will be there. Um, so remember that. The, the opening line here, remember, is who's there? It's a stunning line if you think about it. Who's there? <laughs> a ghost has been appearing on the ramparts and it's put the guards on edge. They're nervous. This is an apparition, right? It's not of the natural order. And um, Hamlet's called, and he's and he comes, and he learns from the ghost that it's the ghost of his father. And um, the ghost tells him to avenge his death because his brother Claudius poisoned him, killed him. Claudius is on the throne, so immediately we're, we're put into a world in which we cannot trust. Who's there? That we don't know who people are. And by the way, I mean, think about that in Othello. It's just amazing to me. I, 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 we've got to answer this. Everybody in Othello thinks they know people. They, they keep saying, it's really interesting. The word honest, you know, through the play, Iago is called honest Iago. Again and again and again and again. And very often when somebody's called into doubt, the word that will be used to describe that person will be honest. 
Desdemona is called honest. A number of people are called honest. Um, and yet there's something wrong with all of them. They don't see Iago. And in some sense, that means they don't see themselves. They're too innocent. They're too trusting. They believe that what's in front of them is what's real. Hanlet is opening that question. Who's there? We live in a world in which psychologists claim to see into the interior of a soul. That's the scientific, I'm going to say presumption. <coughs> I'm going to also make a claim here that I'm made trouble with some people, but that I don't think anybody can see into the depths of the soul except God. I'm going to read something next week that I, I think will blow you away. It's by Jean Maritain. It's an amazing statement. God is the only one who knows our souls. It doesn't mean we can't enter the soul and learn to see each other in therapy because I think we can, but how deep we go is another question. In this play, there are going to be two people who are going to claim that they can get to the center of Hamlet's soul, that they know him. And it's important because Hamlet's going to unhinge everybody. Claudius is going to get nervous about what Hamlet's doing, and he's a totalitarian leader. He wants to have control over everything. Totalitarian means everything. That's the wrong with it. If it's everything, it means the soul itself. The great wrong of totalitarian governments is it presumes to take over the place of the church. And what's the work of the church? To help a man attain his salvation by working with his soul to help get him to God. If a totalitarian state ever takes that on, they're taking something that only belongs to the church. Claudius is presuming to control everything. He's, he's an absolute despot. So Hamlet's going to come and uh, meet with a ghost, and the ghost will tell him that his brother Claudius killed him and wants Hamlet to avenge his death. As an honorable man, Achilles, Aeneas, Odysseus, you name them, Othello, um, Telemachus, and, and remember who Orestes was in the, um, in the Odyssey. Orestes was the son of Agamemnon who had to avenge his death by killing his mother because his mother killed Agamemnon. Shakespeare's got all of that in. Here's a young man who has to avenge his father's death. For him to do less than that would, would take away his kleos, who he is as a person. So the great challenge facing Hamlet is to take vengeance. Now, here's the problem. That news comes to Hamlet in the form of a private revelation. Hamlet goes and kills Claudius. It's regicide. It's killing of a king. And everybody says, how in the world could you kill a king? And Hamlet says, the ghost of my father told me. What would their response be? Lunacy, right? Lunacy. A private revelation, by its very nature, puts a whole world out of touch with the natural world as we know it. So what Shakespeare is dealing with is the way in which a Protestant experience, private revelation, unsettled the world because you can no longer turn to anything in nature to get your bearings. What's he going to do? Who can he trust? He's a Catholic, presumably. He's come from Wittenberg. It's the University of Wittenberg. One of the first questions he has to ask himself is, is this ghost demonic? How do I know he's not tricking me? So you can see what a private revelation does, right? It, it absolutely isolates him from the world. Who can he share it with? This is stunning. This, I mean, this is what the Reformation introduced into our world. Who can he share it with? 
Who can validate it? He becomes the arbiter of everything in the world. It absolutely isolates him. And the first thing he has to do as a sensible man is test out the ghost because it may be demonic. He puts on the mousetrap play, you remember that, to prove, he's a good scientist, to prove it. When he sees Claudius's um, response, it confirms the ghost and now he can act on it. And the very next, and by the way, people for a whole century called Hamlet a procrastinator, BS, he's not a procrastinator, for God's sake. I mean, they do that because it's a 19th century unreligious community. They don't treat the ghost seriously. Put the ghost in there and he, how can you do anything but what he does? He doesn't procrastinate anywhere. The first thing he does coming out of the mousetrap scene is to plan to kill Claudius. The next scene, Claudius is at prayer. He's going to kill him. This is not a procrastinator. Why does he not kill him? Doesn't want to send him to heaven. He says, this is a good way to avenge my dad. Well, that's higher in salary. Like, kill him when he's at prayer. And the great, and, and Mary, here's this, who's there? Who's there? He looks at him and thinks he's at prayer. I'm going to wait till he's doing something damnable. And what we learn when Claudius stands up is, his prayers couldn't go to heaven. He couldn't, you know. Hamlet could have killed him there, but he doesn't see him. He misreads. And I'm going to say right now, just at this moment, that is the one moment that I think Hamlet is in most danger of his own soul. He will face lots of dangers in this play. What's wrong with wanting to damn a man? You're judging. Hmm? You're judging. Yeah, it's a mortal sin. The second commandment is, don't use the name of your Lord in vain. That doesn't mean don't swear. It means don't speak for God. The ultimate outcome of a man's soul is in God's hands. For Hamlet to presume to kill that man in order to damn him is a mortal sin of it. And think about this. 99% of the readers I know read right past that scene, and they don't see. It's one of the most innocent scenes in the book. He's doing what an honorable man should, would do. I'm going to wait till he's doing something damnable, then I'll kill him. You can walk back or walk, read past that and not think a thing. Hamlet faces the gravest danger in that moment, I think, than anything... Else so this question about who's there, can we really see inside the interior of a person? How far? How much? How much do people misread? You know, it's been one of the things that I've been talking about all along. Turn to Act 1, Scene 2, just very briefly. Um, this is Claudius's State of the Union. He has killed his brother. Nobody knows it except Hamlet. He's giving a State of the Union, and if you watch, we don't have time to read it. He puts all these contradictions together to bear our hearts in grief and our whole kingdom to be contracted in one brow of woe, yet so far hath discretion fought with nature that we with wisest sorrow think on him together with remembrance of ourselves. Therefore, our sometime sister, now our queen, the imperial jointress to this warlike state, have we, as it were, with a defeated joy with an auspicious and dropping eye, with mirth in funeral and dirge in marriage, in equal scale, that is, it's a bad time, but we have to move on, right? He's a master with words. This is one of the greatest Machiavellian kings we will see in all of literature. What he does with words to bring contradictions, opposites together, to draw people into it. And to me, this is, this is the, the, the point of brilliance. What's, what's 
what's he doing in this next statement? In equal scale, weighing delight with dole, taken to wife, nor have we here in barger better wisdoms which have freely gone with this affair along for all our thanks. What's significant about that line? To me, it's an extraordinary line. He brings all these contradictions, say it's a hard time, but we've got to move on. And then he says, your better nor have we here in barge your better wisdoms which have freely gone with this affair along for all our thanks. That's a master stroke. He's saying, thank you all for agreeing with what I did. For not. And what's, why is it shrewd? I mean, what's he doing there? Well, your better wisdoms. He's, he's acknowledging that they're wise people. He's assumed, he's, he's making all of them think, each of them think, well, everybody else agrees, so I'll, I'll agree too. I think that's part of it, yeah. This guy's a real Machiavelli. He's, he's honoring them for their, making them think that they were wise and doing and agreeing with him. And implicating them. If anything happens later, it's your fault, it's their too. Fault. Yeah. they're implicated. And it, it raises a question, did any of them know anyway? But it, we don't know that. But the amazing thing is, by doing that, he implicates. If something goes wrong later, what can he say? You're in on it. Yeah, exactly. <clears throat> now think about it. I mean, what, Shakespeare is this amazing political reader. Take, that in, <laughs> take this into our own politics today. I mean, <laughs> I would say always. I mean, we have to. These, these are, these, Shakespeare is an, there's nobody that I know of who understood Shakespeare. I mean, politics better, except Dante, but. This is a master, shrewd manipulator. He knows exactly what he's doing, he and he wants to get control of everything. So here at the outset of the play, we see Hamlet isolated by a revelation and isolated by his king, because his king was the man who killed his father. And this king is absolutely totalitarian, manipulative. He will put everybody to work on, sick everybody on Hamlet. So what is this young guy to do if he's going to avenge his father's death? So that's the play we're looking at. Okay, that's the beginning of it. It seems to me it's very Protestant. It's dealing with a, a, a whole way of dealing with the natural order that the Protestant world brought into the natural order, the political order. And Shakespeare is showing us it from the outside and the inside in only the way he could. Okay. I want to just... We don't have time, so I want to. I want to. Um, I want to. I'm going to end um, Othello. I want to read the last speech, and then just ask you these questions and call it a day because I'm already. I've gone way, way over. At the end of Othello, remember he sits on the bedside with Desdemona, looks at the candle, and he says. It is the cause, it is the cause. You chase stars, it is the cause. Yet I'll not shed her blood, nor scar that whiter skin. Put out the light, put out the light. If I quench thee, thou flaming minister, I can again thy former light. He looks at the candle and says, if I put out that candle, I can relight it. But if I put out her light, no power can bring her back. He knows what he's doing is final. So this is the opening of Act 5, Scene 2. Um, put out the light, put out, if I quench thee, thou flaming minister, I can again thy former light restore, should I repent me. But once put out thy light, 
thou cunningest pattern of excelling nature. This is a guy who can't speak? <laughs> Root of speech? God. But once put out thy light, thou cunningest pattern of excelling nature, I know not where is that Promethean heat that can thy light relume. When I have plucked the rose, I cannot give it vital growth again. It needs must wither. I'll smell thee on the tree. He kisses her, and it almost makes him want to stop. But he knows if he does that, he will be furthering an injustice because he believes she's unfaithful. She's adulterous. O balmy breath that does almost persuade justice to break her sword. It, it strikes at the heart of him because he believes he's going to violate justice. He loves her so much in this moment. You know what happens. He, he kills her, strangles her. Amelia comes in. Uh, about line 120 or so, they suddenly hear their, this voice, A guiltless death I die. Oh, who hath done this deed? Now remember... Um, um, Desdemona cries out after we assume she's been murdered. And we hear this voice, O falsely, falsely murdered. O Lord, what cry is that? Amelia says that. And then Othello confesses. Desdemona says, A guiltless death I die. Amelia, who has done this deed? Now, they go to Desdemona on the bed, and Desdemona says, Nobody, I myself, farewell, commend me to my kind Lord, O farewell. Now, how are we to understand this? We thought she was dead. She cries out and says, Oh, falsely, falsely murdered. Amelia goes to her and says, Who did this? And Amelia says, A guiltless death I die. Who's done this? Nobody. I myself, farewell. Commend me to my kind Lord. Oh, farewell. How do we understand this? Could, I suppose. I, I don't read it that way. It's interesting, Carl. I, th I think it's more dramatic than that, but. Um, she just doesn't want to blame him. Was, doesn't want him to, giving him to get, um, take blame. Lots of people think this is a woman covering up her husband, the way women are alleged to do at times if they've been abused or something. Is this a cover up? I, I think there's one other answer. You know, in, in the, actually, in the scene before this, when, when Amelia's saying, all men are rotten, I mean, she's very practical and says, because Othello slapped her, he's accused her of being the whore of Venice. And Desdemona says, I love him with his faults. And she clearly does. Although here in the death scene, she's saying, I'm innocent, I'm innocent. He says, confess. She says, I have nothing to confess. And, and he kills her. Um... No, but she says, who, who did this? Nobody, I myself. Farewell. Let me give you my thought on this for what it's, for what it's worth. I think there's warrant for saying that she died. I mean, um, Lear, in the end of King Lear, when, uh, um, not a few years, or Cordelia, when Cordelia dies, he says, look there, look there, look there. And most people think he's mad. I, I don't think he is. I, I think he's on the threshold of the next life. I mean, Shakespeare is so aware. You know, 
everything he learned from Homer and everything his faith taught him. There's another, he, she can be protecting him. I mean, that's clearly a reasonable response. What's less reasonable in the world's term is this, that she did die. She was at that threshold of death. And at that point, having heard all the things that he says to her, and his, you know, as he's said, you can't be, and he goes through the number of things. Because Amelia is going to have the same revelation, by the way. When Iago comes in and Amelia and Othello says, Cassio did this, and Amelia said, he doesn't, he didn't. And then Amelia starts putting things together, and then she says, my husband, my... You can imagine a wife in that moment when she realized, she learns that her husband was a killer. I mean, that, who can square that for any of us if we found out somebody we love? She says again and again, my husband, my husband, my husband. I mean, her world is shattering. The question I have is, that's what's happening to Desdemona, that on that threshold she put it together and saw she had been too innocent. Because the great fault of these Venetians is their innocence. None of them are dealing with evil. None of them. They don't deal with evil. They live in their comfortable, secure, bourgeois worlds with all the security. That's the nature of this bourgeois world, this Venice that it, it, it does not acknowledge evil. And she says, nobody I myself. So it, it, one other, I'd just like to offer this. One other reading of this is she's taking responsibility for her part of it. The, 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 the great harm of this regime is its innocence in dealing with evil. Nobody sees it until the end and then everybody starts putting it together and everybody's horrified. Let me turn to the last line um, you remember what happened. Iago's brought in. It, the whole story is unraveled. We know what happens. Othello tries to kill him. He wounds him. And this is, this, this is so telling. Evil is alive at the end. They're taking him back to Venice. Shakespeare did not kill this guy off. That's not an accident. Shakespeare doesn't do those things. Evil is alive going back to Venice. And I hope it's clear why. Is it? Should I... I hope it's clear, yeah? This Venetian world does not deal with evil. It's going back. Now here's the thing. Othello at that moment, he says, he turns to Cassio and says, forgive me, because he's wrong, Cassio. You know, he, he, remember, he wanted Cassio dead because he thought Cassio had made love to his wife. So he plotted with Iago to kill him. And when he, when he thought Cassio was dead, he took strength from Iago to kill his own wife. Now that the whole story's out, He's crushed. This is the man who's just been saying, and all those lines that I've read, oh, my soul's joy, if I were to die now, I would be at peace. I mean, all these lines that he's read, spoken. Now at the end, he sees what's happened, and he says this, soft you. This is the very end, about line 340 or so. Soft you. They're going to take Iago back. They're going to take Othello back, and Othello says, soft you a word or two before you go. I have done the state some service, and they know it. No more of that. I pray you, in your letters, when you sell these unlucky deeds relate, speak to me as I am. Nothing extenuate, nor set down aught in malice. Then must you speak of one that loved not wisely, but too well, of one not easily jealous, but being wrought, perplexed in the extreme, of one whose hand, like the base Judean, threw a pearl away, richer than all his tribe, of one whose subdued eyes, albeit unused, 
So the melting mood dropped tears as fast as the Arabian trees, their, their medicinal gum. Set you down this, and say besides, that in Aleppo once, where a malignant and turbaned Turk, that's himself, where a malignant and turbaned Turk, now remember, he's Christian, he's recently been converted, we know that from the play. So he's come, he's come from an Islamic world, under the law, turban Turk, under the law, he's, he's been um, circumcised, right, because the Jews and the Islams, because they're under the law, see circumcision is, an, is a necessity of that law, right? He belong, he's come from that world, he's been recently, otherwise how could he love the way he does? Everything about him says, speaks of a joy that we tend to associate with a Christian regime. Drop tears as fast as the Arabian trees, their medicinal gum. Set you down this, and say besides, that in Aleppo once, where a malignant and turbaned Turk beat a Venetian and traduced the state, I took by the throat the circumcised dog, that's him, I took him by the throat, and smote him thus, kills himself. Now, you know what Christian, Christianity says of suicide. He takes his own life. Is this an act of cowardice? How do we look at this moment? If I wish I could read, we had time to read. There, there are two passages that I would, but we don't have time. Remember, one of them is in the middle of that scene where Iago is tempting um, Othello, and he he gives him the story that Cassio has been sleeping with his wife and he woke up in the middle of the night and was putting his legs over Iago and Othello takes that as proof. And then that line where he says, all cannon shot, I mean, it's all the armaments of a warrior, he says it's all gone. And we know from that moment that this warrior, this man that belongs to a heroic code, a code of Cleos, a warrior, has entered a Venetian world of thought and manipulation, because remember that whole scene started with thought, 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 you thought this, think, think, tell me what you think. Shakespeare's hitting us over the head. We're out of that heroic world into a world in which the mind is prized because it's the, it's the source of all of our resourcefulness in our Venetian enterprise. Yes? So we've entered a world in which the mind is prized above everything. For its resourcefulness, what it's produced is Iago. So there's that moment when we see Othello leave that heroic world and now he's completely in this world. And here's the outcome of it at the end. And there's that other passage, we can't read it, where he talks about his whole inside being destroyed, that if he had loved less or loved, but he loved her more than anything and she struck right at his heart and took his whole heart away. We don't have time, but those would be two passages that I read. But here we are at the end. Um, he kills himself, he just killed Desdemona, the thing he loved most in the world, and once he realizes what he did, now, now it's, everything's come to light, he kills himself. So what do we make of this? What do you make of this? Cowardly? Just? What do, what do you guys... Well, he couldn't live with himself knowing what he did. Despair? Helplessness. Worthlessness. Hmm? 
maybe he was feeling worthless because of what he had done. Maybe so, is it despair? Have a right to let go. Where a malignant and a turban Turk beat a Venetian and traduced the state, I took by the throat the circumcised dog. Those are not very flattering. I mean, what he's killing is all that in himself that he hates. Really, just despair. Let me ask it differently. If he were to go back, if he didn't kill himself here and he were taken back to Venice and put in charged, what would the Venetian state do with him? Really? I think so. I think they would. What do we know about Venice? Prize his uh, his service to the state. All the extenuations, and he says, extenuate nothing, nothing extenuate. This is the man they prized of everybody. They wanted him to lead this expedition against the Turks. Venice loves this guy. They see him as a savior. And, and, and when the story was presented, look at what Iago did to this guy. What would they say? He was tricked. Yeah. So it wasn't really... Remember, this is, remember we've been talking about Venice as the rational regime, that everything outside of reason as we know it, they, can't, they deal with, they call it magic, charm, superstition. They don't deal with evil. They rationalize everything in terms of self-interest and advancing and resourcefulness and... At least one of the questions we ought to be entertaining here is if, and it's a question, if you look at all the other plays, the evil people die. All of them. Iago's alive. They're sending him back to Venice. Why does Shakespeare do that? And if they'd taken back um, Othello, it's a serious question in my mind whether they wouldn't have found extenuating circumstances. That what, that's what this regime does. How would that settle with Othello? He couldn't live with that either. Couldn't. Couldn't. I mean, either either this is cowardly, or this is tragically heroic in the way that we've been talking about this man, that there is something extraordinary to this person that we've been made to feel, to see, and he's, he's performing an act of justice, that he knows that if he goes back, he'll be let off. And it can answer the crime that he committed against the woman he loved. I just throw that out for you guys to think of. Because remember, Shakespeare, Shakespeare goes beyond the abstract categories that he takes us into these lives to... Um, so, um, what Shakespeare's showing us in Othello is the dark side of the commercial regime. Now, one, just this, why, I'm gonna end this here, because two, two quick questions. Why, what is it about this regime that makes us so susceptible to evil? It's so much more, e this regime is so much more susceptible to evil than any other regime that Shakespeare deals with. And I've already given you that sheet. There's not a regime that he doesn't deal with. France, Spain, Navarre, Africa, Italy. All the, half of his plays are set in Italy. It's the Italian Renaissance. And remember, for those of you who did Dante, that's the source of the Renaissance, the conflict between church and state, produced these new communes. It produced us, the modern commercial regime, Florence, Venice. What is it about this regime that makes it so susceptible to quick? And where's Christ?
Well, it's fundamentally built on the law, isn't it? And, and Which is? Um, well, they, they don't understand what they, they don't grasp the truth of the reality. And, and I think it's almost like they, they like to be lied to. Wow. It's like, you know, uh, uh, because it doesn't challenge them. So they don't have any introspection about what a fellow is able to do is tap into his, he has a rea that reality of what he's really truly done. He can't let himself off the hook. Yeah. And so, uh, which, which um, very few people do. I mean, very few people will, I mean, yeah. Rationalize their yep. behavior. Yep. Yep. They will make excuses. Which is a part of the regime. I mean, it's what it does. Yeah. Yeah. So I think. I think the whole, the whole point is, it's always your your innocence will always put you in a situation like this. Yeah. What. Let me offer just a couple thoughts because it's it's. I'm sorry, I took gone so late. A couple quick thoughts. One is, God made God created us in His image. He made the nature of the soul infinite. The desires in us are infinite. We want and want and want. In a consumer world like ours, we're on a treadmill. The very nature of the regime encourages us to consume, to buy, and as soon as we buy, want more. Because if we have a soul with infinite desires, they will never come to rest. Remember the lyric to come to rest, the desire, until we meet God. Because he's infinite in nature. That leaves us, I'm going to say, that leaves us particularly susceptible to signs because we want, to, we want to vest more in those things than is really there. Catholics have this protection, interesting to me. We go to a Mass and say, that's not just a sign. It's an actual living presence. It's there. But if you're in a world in which that other there is not there, then you're constantly wanting to make more of things than, there, than is there. So it's particularly susceptible to science, the hanky. And it makes them do things, Othello, based on that exaggerate, exaggerating the meaning of things, because they don't see the other world connecting to this one. Their whole, the very nature of the world is based on a lie, because they, they're claiming reason is sufficient for everything. The one thing, reason, two things. The danger of reason is that can, we know this, it can destroy itself. We can give reasons for taking our own lives. It does not deal with evil. So it, there, there are things about this regime that are particularly dangerous for us as humans. It seems to offer us the greatest comfort, the greatest security, the greater material wealth, but it's also inherently more susceptible to evil, to sin. Now where's Christ? I'm going to say he's in Othello. Um, for two reasons. Suzanne and I had an interesting talk because I was, she, she was having trouble finding him and she said, this is an interesting conversation. We should, she said, I can see him easily in Portia. Because Portia's got no faults. Or Desdemona, yeah. Yes. Yeah, good, Don. I really believe Desdemona too. Um, but I think he's in Othello broken in our fallen world that what he does at the end is absolutely in keeping with the depth of love he felt for this woman and the justice that has to be asked of it. I mean, Tom put it well, I thought when he said, can't let himself off the hook. It's Christ-like, it, look at how disinterested he is. He's so disinterested, he said, extenuate nothing, he's very calm. 
He's not afraid to die. He has the disinterest of Christ when Christ is standing in front of Herod or Pilate. Absolutely disinterested. He's protecting the love that he had for his wife and that she had for him and the justice that has to answer it. So I'm going to say, I think, even though I know lots of Catholics who would disagree with this, I think, um, I think we see Christ at work there in this play, in this tragedy. So let me leave it there. Um, do you disagree? Do you want a minute? Do you disagree? Well, kind of. Go, go. No. No. <laughs> I think what John said about Desdemona. Desdemona. Yeah, without a question. But I think particularly because when she says nobody, I myself, because I believe at that moment she's got past her innocence. And she sees that she was implicated in this. Um, okay. See you guys next week. Have a good, a good weekend. Oh. Mayor Jane needs a ride. If you don't get one, we'll give you a ride. If anybody's going that way. Don, did you want to?